0: All right, need to be kind of wrapping it up and heading back to your seat, so <laughs> So that wasn't so bad, was it? Okay. So did you learn something new about somebody? Something shocking? <laughs> I'm not even here. I've been told that, I, I never answer that question, so I'll answer this one. Actually, uh, for some period of time, um, drove an 18-wheel truck. Oh, wow. See? Tell them what was in the 18 oh. oh yeah, in the 18-wheel truck were wild animals. What? A lion, <laughs> a tiger, This was part of a ministry I was involved with um, years and years ago. And I actually had my CDL license for a while and uh, schlepped animals all the way across Texas and all over the place. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I would have no trouble writing that paper. All right, I have a question for you. Who in here... um, made coffee this morning before you came? All right, who here normally makes coffee in the morning? Okay, we need someone once a month to make coffee for the church. I now know there are multiples of you
1: who know how to make coffee.
0: This is not that hard, okay? One time a month, just come about nine o'clock, you start the coffee, you put the creamers out and all that, uh, and the snacks, and that's pretty much it. Then you just clean it up a- clean it up afterwards. So if you could do that, I would ask you to, Fran, raise your hand. That's Fran. Who doesn't drink coffee, by the way. That's true. Yes, so, all right, we'll see how that goes. All right, well last week I told you a parable about a man who was trying to play tennis. And hopefully you spent some time this past week kind of thinking about that story, maybe discussing it as part of your small group, and so forth. And if you did, that's great. Because there were really, not necessarily any wrong answers to that. The whole idea was to sort of get you thinking about uh, obviously what a church should be doing in the form of this parable uh, about a tennis club. But one thing that I hope you took away from the story is the fact that our church, Harmony Vineyard, is just as bad at making disciples as the tennis club was at teaching people how to play tennis. And I believe that if we don't get better at both, making disciples and growing disciples, that in five to ten years it will be as if this church never existed. Because the honest-to-goodness, unvarnished truth is that our our church, while I would not say that it's yet in full-fledged decline, is at the very least stagnant. Growing older, but not bigger. And I'm not talking about bigger just for bigger's sake. I'm talking about bigger for obedience's sake. Because another honest-to-goodness, unvarnished truth is that by not intentionally trying to make more disciples of Jesus, we are being disobedient to what is referred to in Scripture as the Great Commission, given to us by Jesus Christ Himself. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So in my humble opinion, we as a church have come to a fork in the road. Now about forks in the road, Yogi Berra famously said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. (laughs) Now perhaps that worked out okay for Yogi, but I think we need to be a tad more specific about where each of these two paths will take us. So one road, one path, one fork, I'll call the path of least resistance. And this is essentially the road on which we currently travel. It's a road on which we maintain the status quo. This means doing our little church thing every Sunday, welcoming visitors if they happen to show up, but not going out of our way to invite any. On this path, we just keep doing that until the money runs out or most of us pass away. (laughs) And if that sounds a bit harsh to you, well, I'm sorry, but that's the reality we're looking at. Because here are the facts. Now these numbers are about a dozen years old, but that essentially means they've only gotten worse, they haven't gotten any better. According to Leadership Journal, 340,000 churches are in need of revitalization. 70 to 80 percent of North American churches are either stagnant or declining. 3,500 to 4,000 U.S. churches close every year. Think how many that is a day over the course of a year. That's like... (laughs) A lot.
1: (laughs) 10, 11.
0: Sorry, I'm not that good at doing math in my head. But all that brings us to the other tine of our fork. And let's call this one the road less traveled. And it's less traveled for a reason. And the reason is, it is not easy. (coughs) It requires change which everybody loves so much. (laughs) It requires commitment, another really popular word. And let's go for the trifecta, effort. (laughs) Change, commitment, and effort. Step one on this journey is to do what I am doing right now, which is I am acknowledging The problem. Okay? Step two is to involve all of you in this effort. (coughs) And that's why the sermon sermon series is entitled, Your Part Matters. (coughs) You see, as I see it, playing tennis in this parable was really about living your faith and while that phrase sort of encompasses all aspects of christian life <coughs> as it pertains to this church at this time it's about making better disi- excuse me about being better disciples and making new ones <coughs> so over the next 4 weeks we're going to examine that theme <coughs> excuse me i just got some stuff in my throat We're going to examine that theme through a variety of scriptures, beginning today with a passage from chapter 6 from the Gospel of Matthew. So let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks for uh, your words, uh, the words of Jesus that Matthew has put down for us to uh, read, to look at, to comprehend. Father, I pray that you would bring clarity, that you would bring understanding, that you would give all of us ears to hear. <coughs> Speak to us today through your servant Matthew and through me. I just pray your anointing upon these words. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's get into sort of what's in this section of Matthew. So we start out Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 1, which says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, this first verse really serves as an introduction to roughly the next 18 verses. And it establishes this theme that doing acts of righteousness before men um, ends up losing the reward that your Father in heaven has for you. Now Matthew records the term, thank you, Jared. Matthew records the term Father 17 times in this sermon, which was something that was very fresh and different to Jewish ears in particular. Remember, Matthew, as we've said before, was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. Okay, So that's why he says some of the things that he says. And so, what Jesus is doing by using that term father so often is he's emphasizing the reality of a relationship. Okay? See, the Pharisees practiced this performance oriented works righteousness, and that was far apart from any kind of relationship with God. And, you know, for Jesus, this was completely unacceptable. It's the same problem that we see the rich young ruler demonstrate a little bit later on, you know, where he comes and. He just can't bring himself to give up you know, all the money that he has. And see, what, he, what Jesus is trying to point out here is that what humans consider righteous is worthless. It's not money. It's not all of this perfunctory religious activity that's going on. Now, Jesus in, in this, this uh, passage is not condemning the righteous acts themselves. We need to be very clear about that, okay? Genuineness was what he was focusing on, right? right? Not the acts. His concern was what was motivating the action. All right? So, and, and we really have got to recognize that the very same act of obedience can be right or wrong, depending on why the person does the act. So, you find that, that some Christians have this mistaken notion that if their righteousness becomes known, that they won't receive a reward in heaven for those deeds. See, and that's wrong thinking too. Right? It's not about hiding stuff necessarily or adopting this false humility. You know, if someone sees you doing something, it's kind of like, oh, it's not me, it's Jesus. Not, that's not really right either. We've got, we've, there's a balance between those things. All right? And that's what we've got to look. So in order to do that, we have to relax in faith in God who searches our hearts right? and who's willing to reveal and purify uh, what is in there. All right? So that's sort of an overview of what we're going to talk about here. So then we're going to see several examples of this that Jesus is going to point out. So we then move to verse 2, and it says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, this idea of some translations, you may uh, find the word almsgiving there as well. Giving is used. Um, Those words are sort of interchangeable with this idea of just giving to the needy, giving to the poor and the downtrodden. And in the first century, the phrase did come to specifically mean give to the needy. (coughs) Now, this kind of giving was not mandatory in scripture because it was above and beyond the three required tithes that were part of the Jewish religion. All right. Uh, now there's really, I wasn't able to find any sort of a historic reference to the trumpets thing. I don't know if it's like <laughs> hiring a mariachi band to accompany you and <laughs> you do something great and they just let the world know. Um, but whatever, however that started, or whatever that, the, you know, the genesis of that was, the, the point that he's making is pretty clear. You know, God's people aren't supposed to draw attention to yourself. Hey, look at me, I'm being holy. <laughs> and see, you see, in, in, in the classical Greek, the term hypocrite referred to an actor on a stage who typically wore some kind of a mask. All right. And so... In the New Testament, it has come to have a negative connotation because it's referring to someone who's putting on an act, right? Who's masking the truth. And we find the, sort of the foundational point for this in, uh, in a, uh, a verse in Isaiah that's then quoted by Matthew uh, a little bit later on. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Genuine righteousness is a matter of belief in the heart. Okay, and so, in, in another thing that's I think important to point out is this introductory phrase that Jesus uses. You know, truly I say to you, I tell you the truth. Verily, verily I say unto you is in I guess the King James. Uh, it's found 32 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And what he's doing is he's setting up, he's essentially broadcasting the fact that I'm going to say something that's very important now. You need to pay attention to this. Okay, so if when you see Jesus saying that, it's kind of what should be a big sign that says, pay attention. And see, in this case, the statement that he's making was intended to shock his listeners. Because Jewish rabbis at that time taught that Giving, um would earn somebody an especially great reward. And if you think about it, it's like how empty it must be to know that because of your own pride, there was no reward for any kind of an act beyond the glory of the moment, you know, beyond someone hearing the trumpet and, and looking and seeing, oh, he's being holy again. And so, this was shocking to a first century audience. It really was. And so, you know, this instruction that he gives in in the third verse about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, this is exaggerated wording that that Jesus is using. I mean, we all know it's impossible to do that, (laughs) right? But the idea is clear. You know, it's very similar, I think, to, you know, when we talk about uh, God. N- not um, keeping our sins as far away as the east is from the west. Okay, well that's not really possible. <laughs> but it's the idea that we're, we're emphasizing here, that it's a huge distance, it's a great distance. Okay, Well here, you know, this whole idea of the right not knowing what the left is doing is, is simply that it's supposed to be private. He's saying, do all you can to avoid drawing attention to yourself. See, this is not just if someone offhand notices, that's different. This is, you know, hiring the mariachi band to accompany you on your mission trip, right? (laughs) Um, And the reason we do that is because nothing escapes the eye of God. God knows even the most private act that you do. And I know, you know, probably all of you have done things like that in the past, where... You found out about a need, and you very quietly and without any fanfare met the need. You know whether it was writing a check to someone or going out and getting something or uh, whatever, and um, probably trying to make sure that the person didn't find out. You know who it was because you didn't want to take that honor and glory on yourself. And so you know, Jesus uses this title, Father, as well, to sort of add some warmth to the guarantee of this reward. It's not supposed to be this mechanical kind of relationship where I do this and I get that, right? Rather, the gift that is given is from the heart, given out of love for the Father, and then the reward is returned as to a dearly beloved son or daughter, okay? So that's how this is supposed to work. So let's look at the next verses. much of what I said in the previous, about the previous verses applies again here. All right, just a couple of things to sort of point out. Um, standing, in this instance, is a, a, a verb in Greek that sort of a, implies this practice of taking a position and staying there for a long time. Uh, okay, so this is you know, probably whatever you know, position they would pray in. This would be something you would hold for a long time to make sure somebody saw you doing it right? You know, so, or whatever. And uh, street in this case is not just any old street. This is not like a little back alleyway. In, in the Greek, street here refers to a very wide street, which implies one that is very heavily traveled, which also then implies that many people would see the person doing this. Okay, and so once again, the, there's this emphatic "you" at the beginning of verse six, which is separating the servant of the kingdom from this crowd of hypocrites. All right, and, and Jesus is certainly you know again he's not forbidding public prayer. We encourage public prayer, right? We tell you, hey, if you see someone in the grocery store who's hurt, go pray for him. Just leave the mariachi band at home. <laughs> you know if you're going to do that. And if somebody sees you, so much the better. In that case, you know, as long as you're not drawing attention to yourself, because that's a perfect opening to have a conversation with somebody. You know, right? Well, what are you what, what are you doing? Well, you know, then you can talk about. Well, I believe that you know, and our church teaches that if we see somebody who's hurting, we're supposed to go pray for them. Oh, really? Well, what church is that? Well, would you like to come? See how easy that was. <laughs> And one last thing, it it may be said that the person who prays only in public and never in private is praying for entirely the wrong reasons. Right? All right, moving on. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It is uh, no doubt ironic that this prohibit prohibition against a meaningless prayer is issued immediately in front of the Lord's prayer which is without doubt the most often repeated without meaning passage in the Bible. You know, we call it the Lord's prayer but Jesus wasn't actually praying when he said it. He was teaching his disciples how to pray. Okay? Now, what's interesting to note is that first century Greeks and Romans believed in this pantheon of gods. Okay? And I don't know if you saw uh, the movie about the Apostle Paul, but there was a really good scene in that movie where the Roman centurion goes into his temple or the prayer room in his house and he's got this huge like altar with all these candles on it and these little figurines and things like that, and it's all the different gods that they prayed to. All right, so it was a great illustration of this, this point. And um, they, their goal was to attempt to appease as many of these gods as possible so that they would receive their blessing and not their wrath, okay? And um, because they believed that these gods were so much like human beings, the pagan worship, worshiper believed that he had to pray over and over and over again just to get their attention. And so once the worshiper then got the god's attention, that he would continue to pray over and over and over um, to make sure that he got heard correctly and as a means of convincing this god that my request is worth granting, right? Worshippers of pagan gods also believed that words carried some kind of a magical power. And so thus the more often these words were used the more powerful the magic. And I think it's possible that there are even some well-meaning modern believers that kind of fall into this same trap. That, you know, if we repeat certain power words often enough, that that somehow induces the Lord um, to act on their behalf. And, you know, I've always loved, when John Wimber taught on um, healing, One of the things that he taught, and John was such a funny guy, you know, he he talked about how short Jesus' prayers were. And he would say, you know, something like, get up. (laughs) When he was praying for Lazarus, he said, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. That's all he said, right? And out comes Lazarus. So it it was always a humorous way, I think, of driving home the point that Jesus didn't pray these mouthful of prayers. He was very specific, very much to the point, uh, and we we need to do that too. We need to remember this, this prohibition, if you will, against just repeating the same phrases over and over and over and over again. Because Prayer is not for the purpose of informing God about something. <laughs> Realize that? <laughs> Realize what this said? God already knows. Okay? Prayer expresses to Him and to us the fact of our impotence to meet our own needs. Amen. Big difference there. Attitude difference, right? Biblical prayer is an act of faith. It's an expression of dependence upon God. And, and this meaningless repetition either signifies a dependence on yourself to make something happen, or to manipulate or badger God into complying with what you want. I just tell you right now, I don't think that's gonna work. All right, we're gonna jump over the Lord's Prayer Uh, We've talked about that before, and it's not necessarily pertaining to exactly what we're talking about here. So we're going to jump down uh, from verse 8 to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you." So really we have the same thing going on here. Now, what is sort of interesting is that, do you realize that there really is no New Testament command, if you will, or inclination to fast? And there really are only three occasions in the Old Testament when people were to fast, and I think it was at the three major feasts. Is that is that correct? One? Just one? Okay. I stand corrected. My Hebrew expert over here. Um, So what this sort of points out, and, and I mean, and I'm not saying fasting is not a good idea. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But I think what Jesus is pointing out here is that, see, the rabbis taught and the Pharisees practiced fasting twice a week which was uh, totally an addition to what the Old Testament even taught. So this is part of that uh, batch of rules, if you will, the 300 and some odd additional things that you were supposed to do if you were going to be a good Jew. Right? But it's not taught anywhere. Now, Jesus fasted. Okay? And as we'll see in a minute, I am certainly not saying that you shouldn't fast, but the point was that um, this fasting was being done in such a way as so it could be observed by everybody else. You know, that's where this idea of, you know, anoint your head and wash your face. Because clearly what these folks were doing was in some way trying to make it very obvious that they were in anguish, I guess, or just hungry or whatever that, you know, I don't know what someone who was fasting would look like. You know, (laughs) walking around all the time like this, oh, I'm so holy, but I'm also so hungry. (laughs) You know, but the point being, you're not supposed to make a big deal out of it. right? So it's just one more example. All right, so where does all this lead us? Well, I think the first thing that we can draw out of this particular set of passages is this idea that living your faith is an expectation. It's not an option. Living your faith is an expectation, not an option. Why do I say that? Well, when you look at what Jesus said, he said, when? When you give to the poor. He said, when, you fast. He said, when you pray. He didn't say if. Mm -hmm. If is conditional. Mm -hmm. When is not. And as it relates to what I was saying earlier, we need as a church to make a transition from being if Christians to being when Christians. So it's not if I go to church on Sunday it's when I go to church on Sunday. It's not if I pray for healing, it's when. It's not if I feel like worshiping, it's when I worship. It's not if I invite someone to church, it's when. It's not if I choose to serve on Sunday in some capacity, it's when. We've got to start looking at the book of Acts, not as a a nice book of history that chronicles the beginnings of the Christian church. We need to begin looking at the book of Acts as a handbook for when Christianity Living your faith is an expectation. It's not an option. And I don't think this, whole Id- this when idea I- I- is strictly limited to these small examples that Jesus uses in this, in this parable or in this story. It applies across the board. And it applies to me just as much as it applies to all of you. I don't stand up here and and, and it's not my style to say that you need to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. That would be hypocritical. (laughs) That would make me a Pharisee. And I have my if moments just like you do. Okay? So we all need to get better at being when Christians. Okay? If we want you know, like I said, it's a choice. We can choose to just let this church fade away and let there be basically no you know, remembrance of it past when we're here. Or we can use this opportunity to build something lasting, something meaningful, something that honors God, something that builds the kingdom of God. something that changes lives. Something that brings disciples into the kingdom. But we've got to lose the if. We have to embrace the when. If that's going to happen. So start living your faith as a when Christian, not an if Christian. Secondly, secondly, Live your ways, living your faith in ways that are unseen, is just as important as living it in ways that are seen. And this is exactly what Paul was talking about in his, um, in the text where he talks about the, 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 the church as the body of Christ, right? Because he's talking about you know the eye shouldn't uh, or. The ear shouldn't be jealous of the eye because the eye can see and the ear can only hear. There, there are roles and jobs within a church that are very visible. Mine is one. Megan's, the worship leader's, is another. But there are a lot of jobs that aren't. And those jobs are no less important. I, mean, I was sort of thinking of this body analogy this morning. And I thought, you know what doesn't get a lot of credit? Your big toe. <laughs> big toes don't really get celebrated that much. But y- you probably know, if you don't have a big toe, you fall over. That's the, th- that's the part of your foot that actually helps balance you. And if you lack your big toe, you just kind of, which makes you a, a, a highly ineffective body at that point. OK? Nobody thinks in terms of the glory of being a pituitary gland (laughs) or a lymph node. And yet those are all important. Body can't function properly without those things. And I wish you were in here, um, but and, and I don't say this to glorify this individual or to put anybody else down as if no one else does anything. I'm just p- using this as an example of someone that I observe who functions very much like a big toe. And that's Barbara DeMoss. That sweet little lady comes in here every Sunday. And she goes around and she makes sure that there are pens and cards and things like that in the back of all the chairs. And very few people ever see her do that. When the service is over, she goes and she empties all the trash. Very quietly, no fanfare. She just does it because she has a servant's heart. Barbara's a win Christian. What she does is just as important as what I do. God has given me this role. God's given Megan the gifts and the role of being a worship leader. God's given all of you gifts. We need to start using them. God's given Barbara a servant's heart. And I honestly believe he's given all of you the same. You just got to tap into it. Now don't tell her I was bragging on her. She'll get a big head. (laughs) Yeah, if you believe that. So keep in mind that the stuff that you don't see, the stuff that, that seems unimportant is so critical. You know, Think of the, uh, the impact on visitors that come. Yep. If there were overflowing trash cans, if there were no supplies in the chairs in front of them, when we ask them to fill out a connection card, they're like, oh, oh there's not a pen, there's not a card, there's nothing here. See, we overlook things like that. Mm-hmm. Think of the importance of the coffee ministry. Some of you wouldn't even be awake right now if it weren't <laughs> for the coffee ministry. That's important. (laughs) So there's lots of those kinds of things. We need everybody, everybody to be a part of this. There are no small jobs. There are no unimportant jobs. We've got to come together as a body and let all the parts function, Okay. And what's the what's the upside of doing that? Well, when you live your faith in that way, you are rewarded. Nobody, maybe nobody else but me, you know. And, and so in this instance, this is sort of me being God, watching Barbara do these things, right, and noticing. And it was interesting because um, Ken Peters, who's who pastors the Richmond Vineyard, or did at the time we were there told me something very early on when we were there uh, and I was preparing to you know, come do this and what he told me was look for the people who empty the trash without being asked to do it those are your servants those are the folks that have a servant's heart that you can count on for greater things because they're willing to do the small things without even being asked. I have never asked Barbara to empty the trash. Not once. I did ask her about, you know, mentioned about putting the cards out, but I only had to ask her once. And she's just done it every week. Never once did I say anything about the trash. That was all hers on her own. Her reward, and we have you know, we try to honor people that do things like that, that, th- that, you know, do a lot for the church. And I'm not good at saying thank you and I apologize for that and I'm really going to try to do better. But um, we have to adopt that attitude because it takes, it's going to take everybody here using all of their gifts. And we're, we're going to continue to talk more about this as we go through you know, this month, this, this particular series, which is on this idea of your part matters. It's a perfect example of, of that very sentiment. Barbara's part matters. Your part matters. I don't want to just blow her up to the, you know, to the elimination of everything else. She's just a great example. And like I said, there are many of you here that I know do things, and you do them very selflessly. And I again, I thank you for that. We had a wonderful instance of that yesterday at uh, Ed Goble's Memorial Service. Lots of people brought food and were serving folks and and, and all of that. And it was really cool to see. And I know it blessed Mary. She said it did. And it blessed Lisa and Greg, um, Ed and Mary's children as well. You know, it was just so, so fun to see that happen. It was the same feeling I had when we did the gift wrap outreach. And you know, many of you were part of that, and, and just watching all of you, you know, interacting with people and, and getting in there and wrapping presents. you know, I learned something that that cliff actually is a pretty good gift wrapper. <laughs> <laughs> he could have used that as one of those skills that no one would have ever expected that he could do. He can tear a motorcycle down, put it back together, but you wouldn't necessarily think he would be good at gift wrapping. Well, he is. (laughs) So, you know, and I I had that same feeling as I watched all of you participate in that. And, And I want to see more of that. It was just so cool. It's so cool to see the body come together and to really be the church. And again, I know that it blessed, you know, the folks that were there and the folks that came You know, and have we seen anybody show up at church yet? No, but that's okay. It's okay. We're just going to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. For me, as I was thinking about this, I'm sort of thinking about this as, as my Joshua moment. If you remember in scripture, um, Joshua, correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been wrong before. It doesn't happen often, but (laughs) Joshua famously said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? And so there was this choice that was put before them, but he left no doubt as to where he stood on the matter. Well, like I said, this is my Joshua moment. I'm committing the next five years of my life to seeing that this church becomes what it needs to be. And I'm asking, and actually that's probably the wrong term, begging is more like it. (laughs) I am begging you all to join me in this. Amen, brother. I have not always done, you know, what I needed to do to make this church the church that it needs to be, the church that God wants it to be. But I, you know, I repent of that right now, and going forward, we're going to do everything we can possible to make an impact for the kingdom of God. It's gonna take a lot of work. It's gonna take a lot of commitment. We're going to offer people a lot of grace. You have always offered me much grace. And I only hope that I can offer you as much in turn. Because we're gonna make mistakes, we're gonna get things wrong. It's all right. I had a coach one time that that talked about how You may still get yelled at, but it's far better to make an act of commission than an act of omission. So make your mistake trying to do something, not failing to do something. Right, And that's the attitude I want us to have. I've said it many times, I'll say it again. You go out, and you be win Christians, and I pledge I will clean up any mess you make. You go out and, you know, somebody gives me a phone call because, uh, you know, I'll I'll take care of it. I'll deal with it. Deal? All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you. Thank you for second chances. I thank you for do overs. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. Father, we As much as we may pledge and stamp our feet and clap our hands, we can't do anything, any of this, without you. And so we invite you so much into this work. We understand that we can do nothing without you. And when we take that attitude and when we do these things for your glory, We know it pleases you. And so, Lord, help us in this endeavor. Be with us. Guide us through the rough spots. Father, for those that resist change, Father, soften them that they might Understand the bigger picture. For people who feel like it's their way or the highway, (laughs) Father, soften their hearts. Make them see the bigger picture. This is about kingdom business, and it's way bigger than any one individual sitting here today. So guide us in that. Help us. We pledge to do all we can. We do not solely rely on you without doing anything ourselves. (laughs) I'm reminded of the old story about the man who believed God said that he was going to win the lottery. And every week He listened and watched, and his name was never called. And finally he turns to God in anguish, and he says, God, what's going on? Why haven't I won the lottery? And God says, work with me. Buy a ticket. (laughs) We know we have to buy the ticket. And the ticket is our effort. And the ticket is our conscientiousness. So bless this, this church, Father. I, I, I Just as well, I want to give thanks for, for Megan and for Rachel and the way that they blessed us today with worship. Father, I just pray a blessing over the Charlottesville Vineyard. I pray the same thing for them that I pray for us, that there would be a renewal, an excitement a reinvigorating of ministry, of passion for ministry. And they too will become a church that makes a a gigantic impact on the city of Charlottesville and on its residents. So just bless them, Father. I ask you to bless uh, these two ladies on their drive back home as they reunite with friends and family Pray a blessing over all those gathered here today. May in your name we go forth and do great things for your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Would uh, a few of those who are released to pray just come forward as we kind of close here today?